Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture story. Hi, welcome to the Global Marketing Show. Uh, we got a great guest. We're very blessed to have someone with us today that is going to talk about a bunch of stuff on uh, global leadership and marketing and go to market. But before I introduce him, I'd like to remind you that The Language of Global Marketing, my new book, is now for sale on Amazon. So it's about how to translate your domestic strategies into international sales and success, uh, international sales and profits. So go ahead to Amazon or wherever you buy books and look at that. Um, I'd love to have any of your feedback on it. So now to the important point of today, let me introduce Eric Stein. He is a global sales and go-to-market guru who's passionate about global leadership and transformation. And he's led several large-scale global transformations. Um, most recently, he was Chief Revenue Officer for Qualtrics. And uh, prior to that, he was Chief Innovation Officer for SAP Americas. So welcome, Eric. It's so great to have you here. Thank you. Hi, Wendy. It's so great to be here. Thank you for inviting me today. Oh, I'm so excited to hear what you have to say. You've got so much knowledge. So let's start out with talking about what global transformation or leadership transformation is, particularly when you work across languages and cultures. Because when you go in to transform leadership or uh, a company in the United States, it, you know, it's one set of of actions that you're taking but when you do it globally you're working across so many different cultures how, tell me more about what that is and how you do it i think the first thing and and i think this is really human is to try and unite people around a common purpose whether you're in a company or an organization or any sort of global team or global construct there really should be a shared sense of purpose, and it's important that everybody have the same understanding of what that purpose is. And if you can unite people around that sense of purpose at a higher level, then it becomes a lot easier to establish the specifics of what you're trying to achieve, because people have a real qualitative motivation for, for achieving it. Uh, and so uniting around that common purpose comes first because you're right, there will be differences in cultural norms, there will be difference in languages, and that kind of leads to my second point, which is flexibility. In order to drive a successful transformation, you really need to understand what's the main thing. How do I keep the main thing the main thing and ensure that everybody is focused on that and provide enough flexibility for people to deliver against that objective in a way that works for them and their teams and the customer operating environment that they're working in? One of the most important things I've learned about transformations, whether I'm helping a customer do it or I'm leading one inside my own organization, is the concept of ownership. People really need to own it, and that means they need the freedom to be creative, to be innovative, the flexibility to do things that, in a way that works for them, uh, on a time schedule, an environment that allows them to achieve the objectives you're looking for. And so for me, the important part of any transformation is be very specific about what you're trying to achieve, don't sweat the details, and ensure that it's tied to a well-understood and clearly shared sense of purpose across the leadership team. So I get that. You have to unite around a common purpose, and you have to have flexibility on that. 
And in one situation that I heard is they rallied around quality. And that seems to be something that is shared universally across cultures, languages, and countries. Can you give me some other things, another common purpose that a company could rally around? Uh, certainly. I think that there are a variety of purposes that companies could unite around. A big one in the market today is change and changes that are happening globally. If we look at virtually every possible industry to work in, over the last five to 10 years, almost every single one of them has hit a business model transformation or an operating model transformation. Energy and natural resources companies like Royal Dutch Shell are talking about alternatives, renewables, and sustainability in a way that they simply weren't years ago, and that's going to drive a fundamental change to their business model. Media, which was largely an ad-supported business that provided free content to consumers, is now a subscription business that has had to learn how to sell on a B2C basis, not just because they are targeting ad spend or airtime to advertisers, but they actually need to target millions of subscribers to open up their wallets and to continue to pay for content and platform access on a monthly basis. I had the fantastic experience of working with one of the world's greatest consumer apparel and footwear companies over the span of several years as they undertook a transformation that was really driven by the fact that traditional retailers were closing their doors. They had seen the bankruptcy of several major uh, outlets like Sports Authority and REI. And they needed to continue to drive growth towards a very, very aggressive global top line revenue target at a time where their business was shifting from roughly 83% wholesale to over 50% direct to consumer. And so everything from their uh, manufacturing and European operations in Amsterdam to the warehouse strategy that they used for e-commerce to the importance of the Asian consumer and addressing new demand days like Singles Day 11-11 in China were really becoming critically important to them. And so watching them undertake a global transformation based on the West Coast of the United States, but initially targeting Asian markets was absolutely fascinating to be part of. And whether it was managing their trading facilities in Southeast Asia or addressing consumer requirements in China or having the right leadership on the West Coast of the United States, it was a global effort that was united around the fact that if we want one of the world's greatest brands to continue to grow if we want to achieve the objectives we all agree are important, then we need to change so much about what we are doing and accept that our customer is no longer only just the footlockers and the decathlons of the world, but our customer is you and me. And when you're in a business that has long cycle lead times where you're product development takes 12 to 18 months and it used to be based on silhouettes and colorways and demand signals that you used to get a year, a year and a half in advance when companies like Macy's would place a big order from you. And now your signals for demand are when somebody like you or I buys a uh, pair of sneakers or a hoodie on the internet. And those orders are coming in in units of one or two, just in millions and billions at a time. It really changes everything about how you do business. And so it's really important that your team understand that the continued survival of the company means adapting to and embracing a whole new business model.
That's fabulous because you hear so many, um, you know, like Simon Sinek talking about your why, you talk about so many leadership coaches that have your mission, vision, and values. So you do all this work to establish that, and then you come across a time where your business is going to sink unless you do that transformation, and that's where you've had some real successes. How did you get into doing transformation? I mean, that's really hard and different work. How did you get into it and what makes you passionate about it? Uh, I had the opportunity to first become friends with and then work for one of the greatest leaders, I think, in, uh, in business today. First of all, I've had the opportunity to work with and observe so many great leaders. I have been fortunate to work with some of the world's greatest brands and have them as my customers and work with some of their senior executives, their CEOs, their CFOs, their uh, heads of sales, their heads of marketing, their CMOs. And I, I have been so fortunate to have worked for a company like SAP, where I had the opportunity to have a real seat at the table with some of the greatest companies in the world as they were driving their own transformation. Mm -hmm. But for me, at a very personal level, it really came out of first my friendship and then my opportunity to work for Jennifer Morgan, the former co-CEO of SAP, who now runs the technology and talent acquisition practice for Blackstone. Uh, Jen, to me, is just one of the world's great, great leaders. She led SAP America at a critical inflection point in its own history and was able to drive so much change and create so much energy and motivation purely as a function of grace. Jen has the unique mm. ability to shift the spotlight off of herself, shine it on whomever she is speaking with, meeting with, talking to, and allow them to find their best self in that spotlight. She has a unique ability to understand the very thing that makes everybody great, the thing that they do better than anybody else in the world, and really gets them to amplify that. And having had the opportunity to work for her in my last two roles at, at SAP, what she enabled me to do was to build a leadership team that was balanced and brought in diverse viewpoints and was inclusive of every level of the organization, allowed me to promote talent and create communication mechanisms where I could really hear from every level of my organization, the front lines, the first line managers, my direct reports so that I would have a balanced perspective allowed me to get a team of peers and colleagues together to conceptualize the transformation so that when it came time to execute it, it was never the work of one person. The vision may have started with one or a small group of us, but the design was workshopped so heavily by so many people that everybody was able to see their own input reflected in it. There was, uh, it, it was such an inspiration to me to see what a team could contribute and also how to, how to say no effectively, right? How to give people the opportunity to give feedback or participate in the design and yet still keep it focused. No, we're not going to do this piece because, or this piece of feedback was great, but doesn't fit with the overarching design because it would comp uh, compromise X, Y, and Z. But here are some of the things that you offered us that we did take so that by the time we were actually executing on a transformation, there was that shared understanding of purpose and a sense of ownership around it. And the great thing about it was for the leadership team, oh my God, it saved us so much time and energy because our front lines, our team members were so bought into the process that they became the evangelists for it. We did, um, we had a strategy of continuous pul con pulse, continuous feedback, continuous publication. And what that meant was 
every 30 days we took feedback from the organization we would then follow that feedback by sitting down as a leadership team and analyze what it was telling us and determine what changes we were going to make uh, as a result of it so that we could continue to fine tune the transformation. And then we shared back with the organization, these were the results. This is where you're telling us we're doing well. Here's where you're telling us you want to see improvement. This is what we're going to do as a result of it. We also did quarterly all hands meetings and quarterly town hall meetings that were live and video streams and this was two years before COVID and what that enabled folks to do is they were able to see themselves and their peers and colleagues being successful in the new operating environment. My leadership team may have moderated a panel or hosted the event, but for the most part, all of the speakers, all of the comment content was crowdsourced from customers, individual contributors, and first-line managers. And so in order to make the transformation sticky and to build momentum, we allowed the storytelling to be outcome-based. We undertook this change, and here's what happened to me as an individual contributor. I closed this deal. Here's what happened to me as a first-line leader. My team improved its productivity by 27%. Here's what happened to me as a customer. My customer satisfaction or my NPS went up for these reasons because I now feel a different relationship with your brand, with your company, with your people than I did before. And so we tried to put a very, very human face on the brand that was responsive, not just to what our team wanted, but what the market wanted and what the market expected from us. So did this go across the globe or was this SAP specific in the Americas? This was a global transformation. Um, the first transformation, the one that we did at SAP America, was used as a template for a global transformation. We conceptualized it as a team, as a leadership team. We then pressure tested it. And basically, we took a session of Kill It, right, where we focused for three solid hours on where are the gaps, where could it fail, what are the likely uh, objections, and we tried to destroy it. And then when we found found gaps, we either fix them or determine that there was a critical point of failure and rescoped it to scope that risk out. We then worked with a series of colleagues and got their buy-in and input. Uh, over the course of 90 days, we revised the transformation design 55 times. The final deck that articulated the transformation was on Rev 56 when we actually rolled it out to the field organization. We rolled it out in pilots, starting with one of our representative markets within the North America region, something that had enough diversity of industries, enough customers that had both a B2C, a B2B2C, and a B2C business model, and enough industries that were relatively static and enough industries that were transforming so that we could learn, hey, does this work in energy but not utilities? Or does it work in utilities but not telco? We were looking for consistencies or inconsistencies by industry cluster, by business model, and by whether or not a transformation was going on in that industry or the industry was relatively static. And after a six-month pilot period in that region. We had made iterative changes along the way. We rolled it out then to roughly half of North America and then the rest, and that became the template for global change. And in uh, my most recent role, the objectives... Wait, wait, wait. hang on. On that, no, so it was very interesting to me because you were talking about industry and business model and then rolling it out to the globe. When did you get the feedback from clients, individuals, or managers from around the globe? Every 30 days. Every 30 days, we pulsed our own organization and we pulsed our customers. And we were looking for critical movements with customers in CSAT and NPS and from our employees in manager effectiveness, employee in, in engagement, as well as a series of direct feedback questions about the transformation. And how many itself. companies or countries were you operating in? Uh, at that point, two. And, oh. when we did it, and, then when we, and then when we did it globally, it became 151 countries. 
Oh, so you did the transformation in two countries, but then rolled it out. It became a template for a global rollout. Without getting the feedback from other countries. Now, when you rolled it out, did you have any issues because of cultures being different in other countries? Same feedback. The team that led the global transformation got feedback from a variety of global leaders and global customers that contributed to modifications in the design when it left North America. Okay, so you really, okay, so it really was a U.S. centric, this is the transformation we're going to do. You deep dive, deep, deep dove, deep dived, whatever the past tense of that is, into it in the United States and then rolled it out, but over the same process that you knew it was going to take revisions because that's where the flexibility that you came in um, you found the common purpose, but then the flexibility was when we were going out globally. The initial design that was conceptualized was North America being such a large theater, representing such a significant portion of both the total addressable market opportunity and uh, revenue was an important place to start. And while it wasn't going to be fully representative of global circumstances, it was also the most critical to get right. And so it started there largely as a go-to-market transformation inside North America. That was then picked up as a template and incorporated into a broader global transformation that encompassed the entire field organization. And in that role, I was part of the leadership team that supported that transformation, but it was a much bigger team. And that was actually led by the president of our global field organization. She herself sponsored it and put a strategy and transformation office in place, leveraging the template and some of the processes that were built for North America, but putting a much larger global design around it to account for the fact that different markets are going to respond differently. For example, in um, a good geographic portion of EMEA, South EMEA, uh, most of the Middle East and Africa, you don't necessarily have the same market dynamics as you have in markets like the UKI, uh, France and the Benelux or the Dach region. Same thing in Latin America, you have not just two different languages to account for, but there are variations in market size between a Brazil or a Mexico, as opposed to the rest of Spanish speaking South America. Um, same in Asia Pac, which is a fascinating and unique market because they are all so culturally different from the chables that dominate the Korean economy to the English speaking left right language uh, dominance of ANZ to the unique market dynamics as well as regulatory framework or of a China or an India uh, as opposed to the cultural dynamics of Japan or the huge ge geographic and cultural uh, variety of the different countries that comprise uh, what many companies set up as their Southeast Asian theater. And so the important thing was to account for not just variations in culture, but variations in market size and market maturity. And I think the team that I was grateful enough to be a part of really reconceptualized the templates and the frameworks with an eye towards not being what I would call Western dominant. Even though there is um, a financial importance to uh, some of the markets of Northern EMEA or North America or APAC, the transformation was designed to be flexible and accommodate the different market dynamics and the different cultures of all of our operating regions. And so mature markets could operate at one end of the spectrum and emerging markets could operate at another end of the spectrum. But the transformation was flexible enough to accommodate the entirety of the organization. And that's because of that shared purpose and shared principle um, that there were certain things that we could apply globally in terms of how we worked with our partners in ecosystem, in terms of how we organized our go-to-market operations, in terms of 
what was important for us to measure about our entire field organization, those things became common globally, regardless of how the transformation was executed inside any individual market. You know, what's interesting is when we talked uh, prior to this call, we were talking, you know, you've got 20 years in technology and you've worked for some different size companies. And we got into a discussion about growth companies um, that start, that build their technology for just English. And then they run into a problem when they're expanding internationally because they're not set up to handle other languages or they don't think about the go-to-market. So it's very interesting to me that SAP did the original transformation work, very focused on the North American, but somehow they built it for the global expansion. So I want you to, to talk a little bit more about what SAP did that was different compared to a lot of technology companies that just build for North America, but then have real tr struggles when they're going international. Sure, and I'm gonna talk about two experiences. First, I'll talk about um, the opportunity I had to work for the president of customer success, which is what SAP calls its global uh, field organization, which comprises all of the sales and go-to-market functions as well as its services and customer success organizations, basically all of its customer-facing roles, um, who just an incredibly bright and incredibly accomplished um, Irish woman who spent a significant portion, if not the, the majority, uh, of her career in uh, the Asia-Pacific region, first in Perth, Australia, uh, and then running uh, the APJ region uh, based, out of, based out of Singapore before leading the global organization. I think anybody who's had the opportunity to work in APJ, and particularly those who've had the opportunity to focus on it, always come to the table with a unique global view. It combines, as I've said before, English-speaking, more Western markets, long like ANZ, long-standing large markets like Japan, which has been a significant global economy for at least 40 or 50 years at this point, as well as the height of not just emerging markets, but emerging technologies, emerging standards, uh, regulations around data sovereignty or data privacy or considerations around export control that are all relatively new as you deal with other parts of uh, the Asia Pacific region. And in that, of course, I'm including greater China. Um, and so having a leader who understands that North America or other traditional quote unquote Western markets, be they large, are not the be all and end all. And that in so many ways, what's happening, particularly in Asia Pac, right now, but also in parts of Africa and even parts of LAC, really are representative of the future, of what the future, of the world's future economy and consumer demand and technology operating environment are going to look like. And so having a leader who had such a true appreciation for that was a gift because it allowed us to separate common principles from mandatory requirements, right? We are doing this because the world is changing. We are doing this because our industry is changing. We are doing this because customers expect something different from us. And so it was built around a shared set of values and key principles like getting feedback from our leaders, understanding market environments, changing the things that we measured um, in terms of both how we measured customer satisfaction and net promoter score, or in terms of uh, what we expected from our field organization in terms of operating principles and how we evaluated their KPIs, some of those could be common globally, right? We are going to change the way we work with the ecosystem, or we're going to change who comprises our ecosystem of partners. We're going to change what we measure about our salespeople. We are going to look at our revenue model differently because we have moved into a world where so much of 
you know, you, SAP is a company that has really navigated, I think, quite elegantly the shift from a perpetual license model with a maintenance tail to a true recurring revenue model as so much of its business is based on cloud and SaaS solutions with a subscription model. But that requires a real change in the behavior of your global organization. Jennifer oh, okay. saw how quickly that was impacting North America. And uh, I was lucky enough to have her ask me to address that from an operating framework. And Adair Fox Martin was astute enough to see that this was really a global change and was able to separate. And, and I, I really see her as unique given her history and her perspective in her ability to see, hey, these are concepts that will translate and these won't and most importantly in making sure not there was not just a global team involved but how to define global and at the risk of monologuing a little bit and i apologize for this wendy yeah, I, I do sometimes I, I do sometimes love the sound of my own voice <laughs> please, please <make> <laughs> well that's um, that's my goal is to get your expertise on here so <laughs> i'm learning and taking notes so go for it <laughs> it, it it goes back to your original question which is about growth because so many companies that i have had the opportunity to work with and so many that i talk to now um if they're born of europe they do 70 plus percent of their business in Europe or the EMEA region writ large. Um, if they are born of North America, they do, you know, 70 plus percent of their business in North America. And what's unique is, you know, my experience with a lot of, you know, German companies is they'll do the dock region and then France and then move into traditional English speaking markets like UKI and United States and Canada. Um, and North American companies will do the reverse. Often a company that's headquartered in North America will start in the US, expand to Canada because it's close, same time zone, largely the, the same language. It also kind of becomes the tester pancake for being able to add not just UKI into Europe, but France because of uh, the Canadian language requirements uh, and the need to uh, accommodate uh, French businesses, particularly those uh, headquartered in, in Quebec uh, province. Uh, and then we'll move into the DAC region. And then most will start looking at APJ third, which personally I think is a mistake. That's a personal opinion. Um, almost universally we'll start in uh, ANZ and then expand usually to Singapore next because of in Southeast Asia, you can focus on Singapore and you can focus on the financial community. And so you can retain sort of left to right and English speaking. Usually it's Japan that's next because it's too big to, uh, to ignore. Um, what does become challenging, and I see a lot of companies struggle with this challenge, is I call it the, I know a guy in Poland problem, which <laughs> is you start building yeah. a team. Yes, it gets very, very opportunistic. And, you know, somebody wants to go after one of the big Korean chables or somebody, you know, knows somebody in uh, St. Petersburg, Russia, or uh, in Norway or Sweden. And I really think companies need to have a strategy. It needs to be a product strategy. It needs to be a uh, go-to-market strategy uh, and it needs to be a financial strategy in the sense of understanding which markets can I start by serving remotely, whether that is with an inside sales and marketing team, using digital and social channels, mastering uh, language distance uh, differences or dealing with right to left uh, translations. Can I put resources on the ground? Can I support them? What is my overall cost structure? It, does it show up in my product? Does it show up in my people? Does it show up in less variable costs like real estate or hiring in certain countries that are gonna have employment and labor laws? And what are other attendant costs like um, uh, export control and working with, particularly if you're a US headquartered company or you have US intellectual a property working with uh, BIS and making sure that you've got a full compliance framework set up for doing 
business in, 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 in certain markets and really thinking that through. And so before you run to go after that deal in, in St. Petersburg or in uh, another market, and there's nothing wrong necessarily with being opportunistic, what is your strategy? Which markets are you prioritizing first? Which markets come second? Which markets come after that? And then do you understand how to build critical mass, right? At what point do you have to shift from supporting the market remotely to supporting it on the ground? What's the cost of launch? And then what's the cost of maturity? I think most companies only do one, right? They look at maybe the language or the cultural costs, but they don't look at the shift of how do I get started? What are my long tail things like product or, or being able to have you know, resources that can at least speak local language and, and master customs. And then what happens when I hit critical mass and how does that change my cost structure, my operating structure and my movement to scale. And so very often you find a lot of companies that will get very mature in a handful of markets and then relatively immature in a lot of markets. And they put too many chips on the roulette table and sort of can't figure out what to grow. Next. Right. Yes. I talk a lot about that in my book, too, is you've got to have a company strategy before you can figure out what your translation is. So, yeah. So you've mentioned language and culture a bunch of times. Love to have you dig in deeper into language considerations because an export expert that used to work at one of the uh, states uh, told me once that that's what potential exporters are most afraid of is dealing or trying to do business in a language they don't know. Talk to me about translation, interpretation, issues you've seen, solutions that have worked. Um, so it's interesting. I actually always advise companies that there's an L that comes even before language in international expansion, and that L is legal. Um, because legal can actually be a critical financial risk point. And so for me, the first consideration are legal considerations um, about export control, about the regulatory framework, about what is required to actually physically sit in country or in market, in markets that you want to get into. Um, mm -hmm. And then the last um, legal consideration, just from the, the, these very short bullets, is do you need to be able to transact in that language? Do you be, need to be able to write contracts and other legal documents in that language. I want people to understand the order of magnitude of what it means for international expansion. And so to me, the L that comes before language truly is legal because you need a real assessment of cost and risk. Some markets may look easy or attractive at the outset. And then when that legal analysis is done, they start to look much less attractive than other markets. So don't assume that the obvious answer is the answer until you've done that assessment as part of your company yeah, strategy. Yeah, and there's um, federal and state resources that can help do that research and understand that. So if you go, um, I mean, and there's grants to help support too. So if you search for step grants in your state, you can come up with uh, local advisors that really can help you do that legal research or get that legal understanding for free before you even start going out to the country or hiring an attorney. So I hear you on that. And one thing we recommend is if you do translate your contract, you always add something in there. If by chance there's ever a question on translation, because laws are different, you say which one prevails. You know, so if English is the original, you'd say if there's ever a question on translation, the English language prevails. Um, okay, so that is a good point. Start with legal, then you get to language because you've decided on your your country and language and whether you're actually going to enter. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then from the perspective of language, you have to make sure that you have enough native or fluent speakers to actually cover the market opportunity that you're looking to address. And that reflects, one, what is the availability of native or fluent speakers in the market in which you initially plan to set up shop? Are you going to go in market immediately and hire in market or are you going to base their operations in an existing market that you already have which is why you find uh, 
a lot of companies basing a certain amount of their early uh, growth in EMEA in the UKI market, right? Um, uh, uh, UKI, UKI in particular has become uh, truly an international location and there's great availability of a lot of language competencies so it becomes a good place to start from there are, are of course others i'm simply using that as, right. as and an that's example become more interesting because the uk used to be a wonderful place to launch because it was part of the eu so you could base your headquarters there still speak english and then enter the other european markets through that now that's changed because of brexit so I hear you can still go through Ireland, but it's not as close and convenient as to locating in the other um, EU countries. No, but it is an available source of talent. It is a great source for talent. And I do mm -hmm. see a lot uh, more and more companies having a base of operations in Dublin that will service the growth markets of EMEA. Right. So you had talked earlier that you could start in a market and then when you're starting to get a critical mass or scale you can look higher so how did sap hire uh, or handle translation before you were hiring people in market did you have more of a global view about that or was it multinational you know by the time i came to sap um it was really truly a global company already um and i wouldn't have worked in a global role at the time that we were expanding in to, to certain markets oh, look i can talk uh, a little bit to my experience at qualtrics which i think is yes. fascinating yes. because i think the company really did a an outstanding job with uh global expansion you know, obviously the initial company prior to SAP's original acquisition of it um, was uh, based in the United States and grew aggressively in uh, North America and uh, based its uh, EMEA operations out of uh, UKI um, with that growth centered out of Dublin um, and then started growing uh, its APJ region, which it has done extremely successfully under uh, two successive uh, leaders. One, my successor, the current chief revenue officer, just an outstanding, outstanding uh, leader who came out of Australia with an incredible amount of experience um, and really understood how to uh, grow an APAC marketplace. And then a leader that he had hired first to run ANZ, who now runs all of uh, the APJ region. Um, but a similar strategy of starting with inside teams, prioritizing markets strategically, staying focused on those strategic priorities, uh, and also not being afraid to make shifts if um, markets didn't pan out the way that expectations did or, or other markets took, took off. And, and you kind of have to think about international growth really exponentially, which is in the early days of a company's growth, they may be able to fuel and fund one or two additional markets at a time. It can be very difficult to service uh, EMEA or APJ out of the United States. And so there has to be enough growth in the US to fund and land really from square one in, you know, either uh, the UKI France or the dock region in EMEA and to land either in um, uh, Sydney, Singapore, or Tokyo in the APJ region. You may not be able to do both. You may have to do EMEA first and then do APJ later as many companies do. Um, mm -hmm. But as you grow and as you have more places to generate revenue from, you'll be able to take on more markets. And so in your early days, you may be able to only do one or two at a time, but then you may be able to do two to four, and then you may be able to do four to six, and then you may be able to do eight to 12, um, if you're generating enough revenue to start moving into those markets. Uh, but Which makes sense, because you move into one market, you set up a process, and then you replicate it into another, being flexible to make sure it works with the market. So you start with an inside team, 
how do you handle language and culture that way? You need to put your inside team in a geographic location where you can hire language competencies and you can look for affinities across markets that allow you to uh, grow um, and potentially look at multi-country markets that have potential. For example, many companies after they do UKI France and Germany will um, uh, look at uh, Belgium and the Netherlands and then at a Nordic region um, because if you can hire somebody from, you know, if you can hire enough resources from uh, Denmark, Norway, or Sweden, very often you're ending up with somebody with multiple language competencies. And so you can have people on your inside team be able to service multiple markets. And then mm -hmm. once you've hit critical mass, you can actually put a landing team in Stockholm or a landing team in Oslo or a landing team in Copenhagen and continue to grow those markets uh, strategically. But you do need to set up your inside team in a location um, where you can access resources that have language competencies for the market that you're looking to experiment with. And you have to do a really good job of defining what critical mass mm -hmm. is, right? Um, I find that early on the TAM, the total addressable market opportunity for a market or region is not the only, nor should it be the compelling reason to look at every market. You want to look at product fit. You want to look at cost of entering the market, right? We talked about the legal and financial risks. You want to look at the product development cost. Well, you know, what would it mean to have your product in a certain language or how do you address language and cultural issues? You want to understand local incumbency and who's gotten to the market uh, ahead of you. You want to understand consumer customer loyalty, switching costs. Um, are you in a growth market or a switching market? Um, all of those things become important to say, okay, we're not just going to stand up an inside team. We're going to send up, stand up an inside team for this market and this market and this market. And here's our definition of critical mass. When we hit X percent of revenue, then we're going to put a landing party down. And you need to then have plans for your landing party. What do you put on the ground? Do you have a physical office or do you use something like a flexible office structure like WeWork? What roles are critical to hire? Is it support? Is it sales? Is it marketing? Is it operations? Certainly it's finance. Somebody has to be able to do um, local gap and statutory reporting for the market. You may or may not have those existing skills on your current uh, finance team, uh, but you need to understand what does your landing com party comprise of and how long should it last? How long are you going to leave the landing party as a landing? party and what growth metrics do they need to hit before you continue to invest. Don't assume that once you've hit the requirements to put a landing party down, that you're going to continue to grow. There need to be growth rate and other objectives, and there needs to be a plan for how you grow in order to determine whether or not you continue to invest in that market. Whatever you plan for, you will never grow at the same rate at you, as you think you're going to, that you're going to. Some are going to grow faster and some are going to grow slower. And in a world of constrained resources, you may have to make hard choices about who gets continued investment. Because what the budget looks like on that Excel spreadsheet is never how it's actually going to play out in reality, 6, 12, 24 months down the road. And so really have a plan that goes out a couple of years with key metrics and key performance indicators behind it. This is so fascinating. 1% um, of companies in the U.S. export, 98% of those are small and mid-sized companies. And so you're bringing in a view of a larger company about how you would launch. So this would be really good for larger companies or venture funded companies that have a fast growth rate that they could follow the, the plan that you just laid out. And I have a bunch of formulas uh, written down from what you've said that make a lot of sense. So I, it's, it's been very interesting listening to you. 
um, and how to strategically think if you've got the money to re and really know that you've got you're going globally. Um, I hate to say this, but we're running out of time, and I want to get to know some more about you. So I always like to ask, what's your favorite foreign word? Oh wow! All um, right. Uh, Probably Schadenfreude, the German word for shameful joy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm a big fan of guilty pleasures, so uh -huh. um, no stranger to celebrating a little bit of shameful joy. Yes, yes. So uh, tell our listeners a little bit more about where you'd use that or what it means, because I have heard that before, and that's so good. Mm. So I've got twins that will be uh, five and... April. Um, mm. And uh, my, my son really is very creative and likes to make up games, but always make up the rules. And his sister just loves to play with him. So she'll, um, she'll usually uh, just go along with whatever he's, he suggests, but she's the more outdoorsy and athletic. And whenever they're outside and making up any sort of uh, uh, of game or, or playing anything outside. And he's getting a little bit um, domineering about the rules. She will pick up the ball and run away from him and she can outrun him um, until he agrees to uh, let her make up the game. And I take a certain amount of schadenfreude in watching her call the shots. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. I love that story. And happy birthday to that to the to the five year olds. Um, how about your favorite vacation? Oh wow. Um so uh, about a year before our twins were born, my husband and I had the opportunity to spend three weeks in Asia. I love Asia. Oh my God. It was so, it was such a gift to be able to go for such a long period uh, of time. Uh, we flew into Singapore and spent a couple of days there. We uh, got to visit the resort coast of Thailand and then spend a couple of days in Bangkok and then uh, spent almost four days in Vietnam visiting uh, not only Saigon, but going to Da Nang and the Green Zone and seeing uh, a town called Hoi An, which uh, is 500 years old. It managed to survive um, really so much of the destruction that happened in the 60s and 70s, uh, and then go up to Hanoi. Uh, we ended our trip in China. Um, we were based out of Hong Kong for uh, about five days and got to visit uh, mainland China um, and Macau, which is like fascinating. Like, like I, Las Vegas does, it doesn't do it justice, whatever you're visualizing. If you haven't been there, it's so mind blowing. Um, uh, but, but Hong Kong was Fantastic. And the funny thing about all my international travels is wherever I, I go, well, there's great food and we ate a fantastic meal on the 103rd story of the ICC in Hong Kong. Um, we also ate at a great Italian restaurant. I have eaten at great Italian restaurants in Italy, Germany, France, the UK, Israel, uh, China, just, um, and I take a little bit of pride in this, having a little bit of Italian in my background, that uh, Italian food seems to be the universal unifier. So. Ah, that's great. That's great. What's, uh, what's your favorite Italian restaurant close to where you live? Oh, uh, what is my favorite Italian restaurant? You know, there used to be a restaurant on Greenwich Avenue in, in Manhattan called uh, Grano Trattoria that we just loved. It closed a couple. It, it, it closed a, a couple of uh, 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 of years ago. Um, uh, but we've got a couple of neighborhood places here in in Westport, Connecticut, where we live now that we we really love. Oh, good, good. Um, and how about your most rewarding or memorable or crazy cross-cultural experience for work? So the very first time I went to Germany for 
SAP was not too long after the events of September 11th. And so, I mean, I started traveling what became for a good bulk of my career, 150 to 200 nights a year away from home within three months of September 11th. Um, and those first flights were tough. They were frightening to, to get on. Uh, my first trip to Germany, I left out of Washington, D.C. It was, of course, an overnight flight. I didn't sleep a wink. I was both, you know, just still terrified to get on an aircraft and also excited about going to the headquarters of one of the most storied technology companies in the world. And, you know, so I'm up all night. I land at um, like 5... 35, 45 in the morning, and I'm waiting at the car rental counter until they open at six. And the advice I had gotten from colleagues um, before I left about driving in Germany was twofold. One, um, even if you can drive a manual, tell them you can only drive an automatic. That way you'll get a Mercedes. Um, so inside tip for anybody traveling to, to Germany, because most of the automatics are Mercedes in Germany. And the other was when you're leaving the Frankfurt airport and headed down to Heidelberg, which is where pretty much everybody stays because it's close to the company's headquartered in Baldor. Um, take the A3 to the A5, and it's the second Heidelberg exit. And mm -hmm. so that's what I did. Like here, I've been up all night. I'm like leery eyed. I'm like sitting in the Frankfurt airport eating like a pretzel and waiting for, and a coffee and waiting for the counter to open. And, and now I, I get into my rental car and, you know, I'm pulling this very, very expensive car onto a freeway that I've never driven before with no directions in the days before GPS. And I mean, this is before the iPhone was even a thing. And um, and I'm driving down to Heidelberg. I get on the A3, I follow it to the A5, I take it to the second Heidelberg exit on the A5, and I figured I'd do just what I do whenever I traveled anywhere, Lincoln, Nebraska, Memphis, Tennessee. I was staying at the Marriott, so I figured I would just drive around the town looking up until I saw the big M <laughs> for Marriott. Well, first of all, um, I, uh, I, I, I couldn't, find the Marriott, which was frustrating me. I'm like driving in circles in Heidelberg and I keep thinking, and every time I see a sign, it says Einbahnstrasse, which I thought was the name of the street. It means one way street in <laughs> Germany, right? So I'm like, I'm on Einbahnstrasse again. Why am I on Einbahnstrasse again? Like I must've taken like 17 minutes for me to realize that it meant one way street. And finally, it's now pulling on 7.30 or quarter to eight in the morning. It's fully light out because it was late fall or early winter when I went. And I just pull into a gas station. Um, and, you know, I'm speaking, I, like just the horrible American, I'm so embarrassed of myself, 27 years old, speaking slowly and somewhat loudly, right? Do you know where the Marriott is? Forgetting that pretty much everybody in Germany speaks English better than the average American high school graduate. Right? And like in perfect English, the attendant at the gas station says to me, go out, turn right, it's two blocks down. Like I was two blocks <laughs> away from it. I had must, I must have circled it, circled it and just couldn't see the top of it for half an hour at that point. No. <laughs> yeah. And I feel your pain because it's first thing in the morning. Oh my gosh. Well, this has been such a fantastic conversation, Eric. It's, I mean, just your, how you think about moving a big organization to do to transform them is fantastic so it, I, I really appreciate you sharing all your insights and stories about what you have done thank you very much i am fortunate to have worked for some great companies i've worked with outstanding people i have learned from some of the world's greatest leaders and so i really give them a lot of credit i wouldn't have had these experiences without any of them Oh, well, that's so nice to hear. I love the uh, gratitude that you have. So listeners, 
Speaking of gratitude, I am so thankful that you listened to this podcast. Um, Eric is really special on his advice. If you know anybody who is looking to transform an organization or is a larger company that wants to expand and use some of these or venture-funded companies, share this episode with them because he gives some really good, practical, experienced advice. So I thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.